بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala We seek blessings on the Prophet peace be upon him Continuing with our book uh, The Inseparability of Sharia and Tariqa by Imam uh, Kamdelvi And this is session 7 beginning with the section called The Blessed Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was made to forget on page 5 That's where we are, right? Oh no, we're on page 4 actually The Inseparability of Sharia and Tariqa Oh, okay, okay oh, oh. I was wondering, I was like, what did you... Oh, okay, so page four, the inseparability of sharia and tasawwuf. Okay, continue. Uh, the inseparability of sharia and tasawwuf. Thus, the understanding of the oneness of sharia, sharia and tasawwuf was embedded in me from childhood and became an inevitable, indelible, indelible uh, part of my nature. So this is, a, uh, I like the choice of words here, the oneness of sharia and tasawwuf. Um, it's very easy to separate the two. And a very key point is you can't. You know. The only way you can separate it is on shelves. And I'll, you'll often hear me say you cannot separate the Qur'an from the Prophet, peace be upon him. On the shelf you can. But the Qur'an is also the biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Qur'an is going through the Prophet, peace be upon him. He's not just, uh, he's not just the mailman. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, you cannot separate the Sharia from um, the Salaf and vice versa. Okay. Yeah, I remember uh, when I actually first listened to... Uh, uh, the Alchemy of Happiness lecture. Um, you said that the Quran doesn't make the distinction between Sharia and Tasawwuf. It's yeah. just the scholars after, as a means to derive benefit from them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it is a rule that what whatever makes its mark during childhood is like carving on a stone. Though most people have never witnessed a lion tearing the flesh of its prey or a snake when it bites, no one can remove the fear and terror associated with such thoughts as they are embedded from childhood. During my student years, when I was studying Mishkat al-Masabih, I read the famous hadith Jibril, uh, of Jibreel salam. He came to the Blessed Prophet wasallam to teach mankind the basics of deen. After Iman and Islam, were, uh, we, after Iman and Islam we read, مَلْ إِحْسَانَ قَالَتْ What is Ihsan? To the Blessed Prophet, so the Blessed Prophet وسلم, replied, "To worship Allah Subhanahu wa Taala as if you see Him." Okay, so there's been a couple of uh, mentions here of Mish- Mishkat al-Masabi. Uh, That's uh, two of the volumes are right there. This is essentially a primer on studying the Hadith. You know, it's laying out the whole Hadith uh, in part, giving a complete picture of Islam, but with the specific intention of teaching how Hadith work. And then you, in, my, in the intro Islam, we've talked about the hadith of Jibril quite a bit, right? That's Ummul Hadith, in the way Al-Fatiha is Ummul Quran. Yeah. So this book, when do uh, people usually study it? This is in Madrasa. I mean, so this will be a little bit advanced. Okay, that's yeah. <coughs> This is the essence of the Sawuf and Suluk. Both these, the Sawuf and Suluk, and any other name given to these, this blessed science, all come under the fold of Ihsan. Then, as I continued studying different books of Ahadith, I became so convinced of the inseparable nature of Sharia, sharia and Tasawwuf that if I heard anything against it, I considered it ignorance and indifference towards the subject. Yeah. Likewise, if I ever heard anything against the pure and pristine Sharia, which is derived from the Qur'an, the Sunnah of the Blessed Prophet wasallam, which is the most authoritative exposition of the Qur'an, and, the, and then Fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, which is the pith of both uh, the Qur'an and Sunnah, I disregarded it and thought it thought it unworthy of my time. Yeah, this is this is a very very important point. One of the difficulties right now <coughs> is you have quite a few people who are speaking about various types of reform of Islam. Reform of Islam as an idea is fine if we are speaking of islah, 
uh, or tajdid revival and, or reform and revival. Um, the problem is that for some people, uh, they want to throw out the sharia, and 99% of those people don't even know what the sharia is, right? And there are some people who have to read those books to know what people are talking about. But he is probably speaking about uh, the expectation of gaining benefit, that uh, those are not books you're going to expect to gain benefit from. So, like, what are examples of this in our time? So, so, number of the reformists. Okay, so there's those people that the Muslim community doesn't really accept, like Irshad Manji. Um, and so, are, are you familiar with her? She's this, uh, she grew up uh, as Ismaili, she self-identifies as lesbian, and she's often on TV shows. Actually, you're going to have to watch an interview with her for my class. And, and <clears throat> even though, by and large, the community doesn't seem to like her very much, I think that has to do more with her tone, what she's actually saying, a lot of people agree with more than they might realize, that, you know, Islam is good, but Sharia is man-made and it's bad and all that stuff. Right, uh, somebody different would be Tariq Ramadan, who he says you have to go through the tradition in order for reform, which is what scholars would agree with. Right, they may not agree with his conclusions, mm -hmm. but that's the the important uh, uh, principle. I mean, it's you, there's a lot more of these people than a person might realize. Like a lot of people like to write about Islam these days, mm -hmm. and to make Islam really seem nice and yummy. And, but like just like we've been discussing in, in Intro to Islam, you know, when you apply these things to the world, the worldly life, real life, then things get very complicated and complex. And people want to try to make everything as simple as possible, but that's not how life works. And then part of like taking away aspects, like important aspects of Sharia, you're basically taking away things that are... Allah has prescribed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even like, especially the people who want to change Salah, and change things like Juma. Uh, uh, salah, namaz, is non-rational. Meaning, why do we do it in the order we do? Mm -hmm. Why do we do one ruku, two sajdas? Why don't we do two rukus and two sajdas, right? That's non-rational. Um, not irrational, but non-rational. You're not going to be able to give a logical explanation. And so, if someone wants to change that, that doesn't make sense, right? Either they have to say that it's irrational, and thus it should be changed. Mm -hmm. uh, or they should say it's non-rational, and whatever the wisdom is behind how it's set up, that's what we have to accept, right? That there is a benefit to it, even though we don't know why we're doing these steps in these particular orders, except that that's what the Prophet peace and did. And that you're going to see a lot of people pushing for, uh, changing the form of things like Juma, mm -hmm. right? And that sums it up. Like when people want to, quote-unquote, reform the ibadah, then my personal opinion is they really have no idea what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's understandable if you want to reform things about the law in terms of ma'amalat ma'ashrat, like we talked about in class studies, social interaction, financial matters, mm -hmm. and such, to make them relevant. Yeah. Uh, but if you're trying to change the acts of worship, it's like, uh, why are we fasting in Ramadan? Why not fast in December? Yeah. You know, uh, that's what the nation of Islam used to do. They, oh, okay. they would fast in the month of December, and and so again. Those things do not have an explanation, and so you have to be very cautious about changing something if there's not a known explanation for why we do it this way. Yeah, that's right. So we call those matters tawqifi. Mm -hmm. Tawqifi meaning it's kind of like set, 
And what it means in practice is that this is what we've inherited from the Prophet, peace so be upon him. Like in, like from that yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's like it's almost like it's it's set in stone. Okay. Like you stop it like this, mm -hmm. you know. And so the point being that um, acts of worship are exactly like that. You know, zakat. Why is it two and a half percent? You know, um, that's what's handed down. Yeah. <coughs> When I heard some people ignorant in matters of deen say, whatever immediate meaning we understand from the Qur'an is the true meaning, there is no need for all these exegesis, tafasir. Uh, I, thought it w I thought it insane. If, I truly, if I was, it was truly that easy to deduce meanings from the Qur'an, then what was the need to send the Prophet, send yes. the prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Yes. The Qur'an could have been, uh, been hung from the Kaaba and people could have taken whatever meanings they understood from it. One of the main reasons for sending prophets was that they embodied the meaning of their revealed books and demonstrated in their practical, it in their practical life. Through them, the deen was given a perfect, complete form and became a way of life. So, in principle, I think you understand this, right? And it's really nice how he put it. If the Quran is that simple to understand, then why send the prophet? Why not just, you know, drop this book in front of us? And then another key point is that the way the Quran works, not like a novel. When you're reading a novel... You're the reader, and all the characters are in the novel. But when you read in the Quran, you're a character. So many times the Quran, Allah is saying you, right? And in Al-Fatiha, we are saying you to Allah. You alone we worship. And so the Prophet, peace be upon him, is a character in the Quran, even though directly he's very rarely mentioned. And so the first mistake a lot of people make in the contemporary time in terms of trying to read the Quran is that they cut out the Prophet, peace be upon him, without even realizing it. And they cut out themselves without even realizing it. Another big mistake when people are, are in the contemporary world when they read the Quran is that if you actually look at the way they're presenting Islam, even though they might think of themselves as liberal, they are often cutting away Rahmah. That's the most common thing you see when non-people of knowledge, non-scholars are doing all this interpreting, that they're really reducing Rahmah. You know? One example. Um, you know, the shifa of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Okay. Like there's shifa, like intercession on the day of judgment that the Prophet, peace be upon him, has taught us, comes from a different, different sources. One is Prophet Muhammad himself. Uh, if you have a strong relationship with the Quran, if you recite per particular surahs of the Quran, these will act as intercession for you on the day of judgment. Mm -hmm. okay. But then what happens is some people read early in Al-Baqarah, and about midway in Al-Baqarah, where it says, Allah speaking to the children of Israel, where he says, you know, he's telling children of Israel to guard yourself against a day. And in that ayah it says, you know, uh, that no one will give shifa for anyone. And then people see that and say, okay, well that means no shifa, which means those hadith are wrong. The problem is, you have to put all the ayahs together. In Ayat al-Kursi, you know, So the point is, whom, you know, no one can give shifa except as Allah allows. Mm -hmm. So put all those together. There's no shifa except as Allah allows. And those ayahs addressing to the Bani Israel, the actual point there, or one of the points there Allah knows best, is that um, they were given everything of dunya, but they should not assume they're going to get anything of akhirah. Right? But the point is that a lot of people, they, they, the end result of the way they, they misread Quran is that they cut away rahmah. Because shifa is a rahmah of Allah, right? And they say, no, no, it doesn't exist. And so, I mean, you're the one who's losing out. People who want to cut out hadith are cutting out the rahmah of, of, of Allah. You know? And that's what a lot of people don't understand.
this if we can all read the prophets here, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <coughs> the Blessed Prophet وسلم, was made to forget. <coughs> In this regard, it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's great blessing upon me that I never doubted any of any of the injunctions of or rulings of the Sharia. I had gained insight, Basira, into the rules and matters of Sharia in a way that left no room for doubt. Sure. This is because the Blessed Prophet ﷺ came to this world to give the Sharia a practical shape. Therefore, he was made to perform certain acts which fulfilled the objective of putting the Sharia in a practical shape without relegating his, stature, his status as a Prophet of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. Yeah, he would. Okay. Could I, or, should I keep going? Sorry? Something? I was going to say something. Yeah, go ahead. Um, how does this... Because, uh, like, he clearly was uh, the scholar of the book. He was uh, he clearly was like given Islam in such a way that no questions could have been asked. Meaning uh, the Prophet or Sheikh Kandal. Oh, is he talking about himself or the Prophet? He Wait. said I had gained insight Basira to Yeah, he's talking about himself there. Yeah. Yeah. So but like in our in like even now we're just like we uh, like even for me, a lot of like thought is being put into it like like a while ago. A lot of thought is needed to be put into religion and huh? criticism. Mm-hmm. So is that just because of the fact that, like, the way that Islam was given mm-hmm. to individuals who critique? So a way to think about this is think of the previous section we read, the one that really made us uh, humbled, mm-hmm. when he's talking about the environment he grew up in, mm-hmm. right? Where it's all of these, not just scholars, but gigantic scholars. Uh, so he's given a very, very wholesome environment. For growing up in Chicago, um, there's all kinds of things being put in you you don't even realize. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't mean that I'm less because I don't have this, mm-hmm. but what is being handed to me is, is uh, the Islam that's going to be handed to me is probably not going to be as strong as the Islam that was handed to him. Oh, okay. right? just, just you know, the Islam that's handed to us is by sincere people who usually don't really know all that much. Mm-hmm. Right? Even, you know, why do I keep, like in intro to Islam, keep saying in Sunday school Islam yeah. they say this, in Sunday school Islam say that. And part of it is to get the point to the Muslim students in the class. I know here's how you've been taught, mm-hmm. but here's the actual situation. Right. Yeah. And so, so we make the, the best with the cards that have been dealt to us. For example, the Blessed Prophet وسلم, and his companions, عنهم, once missed Fajr while on a journey. This is, a, this is in juxtaposition to the lives of many of the followers of the Blessed Prophet وسلم, who succeeded them and who could not sleep after 2 in the morning. The Hadith masters, Muhaddithun, disagree as to whether the Blessed Prophet وسلم, missed Fajr once or more than once. This is mentioned in detail in Awjaz al-Masalik. Yeah. Uh, my own opinion is that it occurred on three different occasions. Look at how precise that is. <laughs> there is an important lesson of Tasawwuf in this incident. Incident: The Blessed Prophet wasallam was not in the habit of asking who was going to wake him for Salah. For salah. It is narrati- narrated in Bukhari that the companions عنهم, requested, O Blessed Prophet wasallam, rest for a while. The Blessed Prophet ﷺ replied, I fear that Fajr will be missed. But Sayyidina uh, Bilal assured him, I will wake you up. This incident raises two issues of the Sawwuf. Firstly, that the Blessed Prophet ﷺ feared he would miss Fajr, as Arab custom was to travel in the first part of the night and rest in the last. Mm-hmm. Why did the Blessed Prophet ﷺ say, I fear Fajr will be missed? missed. This proves that spirit, the spiritual mentors are sometimes forewarned of events before they transpire or feel when something is amiss. Secondly, 
that Sayyiduna Bilal radiallahu an said, I will wake you up in I will wake you up. In Aujaz, it says that this incident was a stern message to Sayyiduna Bilal radiallahu an for saying, I will wake you up. When the Blessed Prophet وسلم, felt they would not wake up for Fajr, his fear materialized through Sayyiduna, Sayyiduna Bilal's radiallahu an uh, assurance. I will wake you up. Um, okay, uh, read the next paragraph and we'll okay. make more sense of it, inshallah. But this raises the objection that if you if the stopover, Laylatul Ta'iris, happened several times uh, on different journeys, as is the opinion of many scholars, then this statement of Sayyiduna Bilal could have only been said at, the most, at most on one occasion. The answer to this is that his state, statement relates to one occasion only. As for the other occasions, the reasons behind the Blessed Prophet Sallallahu missing Fajr on them were different. Okay, so <clears throat> there's the details of this specific event. Okay, the Prophet peace be upon him uh, is missing Fajr. Okay, and and so that's reality. If the Prophet peace be upon him himself has missed Fajr, then we definitely will, right? Uh, at times, uh, but the deeper point is the insight that the Prophet peace be upon him had is what's being mentioned here, that I fear that if I rest now, uh, I'm going to miss Fajr. Okay. And then one interpretation is that's exactly what happened. Okay. Likewise, um, that Bilal is the one who said, I'll wake you up. And so read this two ways. Either the Prophet Pisan was going to miss Fajr, and Bilal covered him, mm -hmm. right? Or the Prophet, peace be upon him, feared he's going to miss Fajr, and even though Bilal said, I'll wake you up, it was still missed, right? But that's not the point of this section. The point of this section is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, himself was made to forget, and everything he did, even when he's forgetting, is also a lesson, right? So, Abasa Watawalla, you know, he frowned and turned away. At one level, we'd say it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. But what a big lesson that is for us. So when he does things right, it's a lesson for us. When he's corrected, we use, for lack of a better term, mistake. Those are also lessons for us. So no matter what he did, it's by definition a lesson for us. So what are we saying? That even if you come across authentic hadith, uh, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, seems to be saying something that is confusing, or you think, how could this be? You may not be understanding the lesson. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So let's finish off this little section. Likewise, never did an objection enter my heart about the Blessed Prophet ﷺ, forgetting in his salah, uh, since he himself said, "Inni la ansa warakin unsalisun li asun." I did not forget, but am made to forget in order to show the way. That's the point, yeah. right? And so he's making a statement then about how we approach the Prophet peace be upon him. When we're saying he's perfect, even his mistakes are perfect, right? Um, so some people don't like that. They say, no, I can't believe in a prophet doesn't make mistakes. No, 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 no. Uh, a mistake doesn't mean that we've been exposed to a flaw. Mm -hmm. His mistake is also a lesson. And I personally think that's really, really profound. Everything he does correctly is, is a lesson, and everything where he is corrected by Allah Ta'ala is also a, a lesson, an intended lesson. So it was intended for the Prophet, peace be upon him, to go to the, to, to frown to the blind man. Okay, and then finish off this paragraph. 
This essentially means I am to teach you the rulings related to when you forget in, the, in your salat, and, uh, and the rulings about the prostration of forgetfulness. Says this to the soul. This hadith has been explained in detail in Ojaz, uh, under the chapter, what, do, what to do when one is mistaken in salat. Okay, so again, so that then taught us, you know, what to do if you make a mistake in salat. But... Uh, really digest the point. It's a very simple point, but I find it very profound. It's very easy to understand, but uh, to really internalize it, everything he does is by definition perfect. Okay. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand. Any, any questions? Okay. So I'll stop right here, top of page 6. The next section is, Sins and Conflicts of Companions was for the completion of Deen. And that we're also going to see, inshallah. All right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.